Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. I will say that if there's one thing that happened in the last two years, the people that were on the fence about being in our industry left. And who's left? are absolute killers and god love you for being one welcome to full comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry featuring restaurateurs thought leaders and innovators served up on the house do you remember the transition from employee to manager for most of us the boss just handed us the keys one day and asked us to lock up Within a month, we have a title, a lot more responsibility, and a lot less money in our pocket. What do you wish you knew before stepping into that role? A lot, right? Today's guest, Ken McGarry, set out to document every lesson he learned along the way to help the next generation of hospitality professionals. And today we cover some of the big ideas presented in that book. So, very standard. First job in industry, dishwasher slash Chuck E. Cheese mascot, and realized very quickly if I moved up in the kitchen, I didn't have to wear the mouse outfit as much. So that was my first motivation for promotion. Then I made pizzas for a little while and then pivoted front of the house and realized that that was where my talent were because being a chef is an inherent artist skill that I just don't have. And then server, bartender, moved Chicago, started as a security guard. And if you can see by my size, I'm not a big guy. So I learned to talk my way out of things a lot, then management. And then from there, never looked back. And it's taken me from Chicago to Toronto, to Dallas, to New Orleans, and right back here, Chicago. And you own and operate, right? I do. I'm own and operate Corgan Hospitality, which is a nationwide consulting firm. And I have currently about a half a dozen clients. I've had about 20 in total. And my lead client is Chef Fabio Viviani from Top Chef. Got it. And you wrote a book and the book is called What and What Inspired You to Write It? It's called The Surprise Restaurant Manager, and it's called simply that because so many people are just being handed the keys and told, hey, do you mind locking up? And then they find themselves in management roles with absolutely zero training. And the number of times that over and over I've had conversations with people about how to hire, how to inspire staff, how to coach staff, and even how to terminate. That's a big gap to where people just don't have that skill set. Plus, Dealing with all of the rigors of the position and all of the stresses that go along with it, which absolutely create burnout, meant that I was having these conversations with restaurateurs and restaurant managers over and over and over again. So I figured I might as well just go ahead and write a book that's going to take me completely out of the mix. So if people read my book, they don't have to hire me as much because most of what I know is in that. And what inspired the transition from owning and operating restaurants to consulting? So it was at a point in my development to where I was a director of operations of a major restaurant group here in Chicago. 
at that point, I realized that I really had two paths. I was either going to focus on creating my own hospitality group, opening up my own restaurants. And I've done that in some form or fashion with some form of different successes or try to focus on helping people. Because the thing I can do is walk in and say, hey, I've noticed this, or you might be able to change that. But as you know, the term consultant in our industry is a really bad word. It's a pejorative because most people have hired consultants. They just walk in and point and take a check and leave. So we kind of built a different model, which was very simply, we're never going to charge you for anything we can't measure. And we're never going to charge you for anything that can't live beyond us. And that's worked out really well for us. And we're on our fourth year. That's amazing. And I would guess that the experience of a consultant in the hospitality space is interesting and unique. I would assume that you come up against the same issues again and again and again. How do you navigate that? Because I would assume that the problems are somewhat universal, but the solutions are specific to each restaurant, right? A perfect example is if somebody says, I want to improve my service. My first response is, okay, how are you measuring that? Is that through Yelp scores? Is that through secret shoppers? Is that your own perception? Because I really can't get you to the point of thinking that you have improvement unless you have a measurable way of gauging that. So, and I can train all of the different aspects of reviewing how you're onboarding, what you're developing, how you're training, and how you're empowering your teams to actually care about your business on your behalf instead of them just working for you and you having to wrangle them. And all of those things are absolutely things that can be put into place. The challenge, of course, is do they have the bandwidth to do that? And that's usually the problem. It's not that restaurateurs don't know what their problems are. It's that they might not have the correct people in place to do that. And the biggest challenge that I get are people that will work with me. And after a month or two, they'll say, well, why didn't you just stay? And I'm like, well, that's not what I do because I have learned I live in chaos. There are two types of managers in this world. There are people who love openings and chaos and insanity that once the restaurant's open, they fail because they're bored. Or the people that come along six months later that are great at processes and polishing and getting measurables down by a half percent and finishing your cost of goods and really, really tweaking it that are slow grinders that are so needed in this industry. But you fall into one of the two and I am definitely the former. I like chaos. So that works well for my business and works well for what I do when I partner with people. Let's get into the book. And at the same time, we can talk current events. We're in the midst of an epic labor crisis. And when I was reading your book, I noticed 60 of the 200 pages in your book are all about hiring. And there's a bunch to unpack there. But what I'd love to do is discuss the ideas that really kind of stuck out to me. Now, these are my words, they're not yours, but this was kind of my interpretation of some of the stuff is that when you're hiring someone, their experience and skill level pales in comparison or in importance in value to who they are as a person. Yes, without question, without question. You can't teach work ethic, you can't teach drive, you can't teach personality, but you can teach people to be a server, you can teach people to be a bartender or a manager. These are translatable skills that are, if you're good at what you do, you can train anyone to do that. I can't train somebody to have a work ethic. Zero possibility. 
You also mentioned red flags, that if people show up to an interview or they say this particular thing in an interview or they present themselves in a certain way in the midst of that interview process, that these are red flags for people to avoid. Can you run me through some of those? I sure can. I mean, it starts with the basics, not showing up with a pen or a resume, depending on the position. Now, for servers and bartenders, I don't necessarily expect a resume, but for a little bit higher level positions, absolutely. But a pen also says, I might have to fill something out and I'm going to think ahead which is a translatable thing with what you might be encountering with your guest. But as it gets closer and closer to those offer killer ones, bashing previous restaurants, it's a pet peeve and it's a bad idea. Obviously, you're leaving your job because there's another position that you're more interested in having, and you're probably leaving your previous job because of either the employer or the environment. But sitting in an interview with me and telling me how bad the place is that you're working just tells me that you're going to be that same person to say those things about me, whether they're true or not, to anyone else. Same thing with not giving two weeks notice. I have 100% pull offers off the table when somebody says, oh, yeah, when can you start? You know what? I don't need to give notice. We'll just I'll start on Monday. Nope, because again, they're going to do that to you. People tell you in interviews, things that you need to listen to. And when they tell them to you, don't dismiss it. It's like buying a new car. If it's already got a dent and the steering wheel is a little messed up, you don't buy the car because six months down the road, those little imperfections will drive you bonkers. You have to be willing to listen. Another thing that I thought was super interesting in this particular section in the book is you talk about useful questions. And I've used a very similar strategy, but you can ask questions to determine exactly what kind of person you're dealing with. And can you talk about useful questions that you've used in interviews to hire? Sure, absolutely. I avoid the very cliched questions. Where do you want to be in five years? What motivates you? Because everybody gives the exact same answer. I want to have your job or I want a place with growth or where I felt to be a family. That's why employers in the middle of interviews will always say things like, this is a growth opportunity because they know that that's a carrot that they can dangle. And oftentimes, that's not really a measurable thing that they can truly stand behind. I, when I'm trying to understand somebody, I am hiring based on personality. And this is all positions. It's manager, it is bartenders, whomever. And simply, I will ask them about extracurricular activities, specifically hobbies, because hobbies will teach you what type of individual that they are. And for me, I can, by the hobby, really assess whether or not you're somebody who's going to do really well at the first part of the opening or in six months. So if you're somebody who likes to have a pickup basketball game with your friends every weekend, or you're in a competitive, you're doing tough mutter, then you're somebody who likes team sports, you're intense, you're competitive. You're going to be really, really great in that first six months when everything is in chaos and you have to have the opinion of, eh, we're going to get it figured out. But if you're somebody who likes to read, enjoys listening to podcasts, as I do, and watches documentaries, then you're somebody who likes to know where everything is. You are a compartmentalized person. You want to know on Monday if the steak knives are there, that's where they're going to be on Wednesday. You're a consistency person. And that's the exact person that I need six months down the road, but not for an opening. And by asking those questions about hobbies, you can understand, are they competitive? Are they intellectual? What is the aspect of what drives them outside of their job that will probably translate to what they're doing? I think it's great advice. Also, you mentioned challenging conversations. Can you like define that for me and then give me a couple of examples? 
Sure. The first part of any interview is supposed to be welcoming. It's this whole aspect of, hey, we have a rapport. I really like who you are as how you're presenting yourself. And that's great. The second part is being able to actually drill into when people make a statement to understand this. And that's a big one that I see a lot to where I'll be interviewing, say, maybe a freshman manager. And I'll say, talk to me about your last place and say, oh, well, you know what? I was able to increase sales by 5%. And a lot of interviewers will say, oh, great, that's fantastic. And then the next question will be like, what's your labor percentage or whatever? Versus, okay, let's stop there. Let's talk about how did you get to that point? I've said with bartenders, like I was a lead bartender and I got my cost of goods down by 3%. Okay. Did you work with vendor pricing? Did you change what was going on in your well? Did you increase your prices based on other places in the area? What was your strategy? Did you train people from how you're portioning? What is the aspect that you took to get to that? But so many people arbitrarily just throw up percentages with no data behind it. So when somebody makes an assertion, dig in. And if you find a head bartender that literally was able on their own initiative to drive your liquor cost down 3%, hire that person. As someone that has hired countless managers and subsequently fired countless managers, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done a lot more digging. And instead of like just broadly talked about all of the value that they brought to the table, really kind of whittled down and distilled out what do they know? What have they learned that they could do or what could they use to create a positive impact in my own business? Well, one of my more favorite things I do, and this is actually more of the seasoned manager or maybe even a GM, is I force them to role play because there is an error of like very conservative, kind of almost stuffiness during some of the interviews. So I want to break them out of that and I want to get to that personality. So I'll say, all right, let's go ahead and role play. I'm Todd. I'm your server on Monday and I have set my table incorrectly. I didn't put the, I switched the knife and the fork. Okay. You notice this. Talk to me about how you're going to coach me in the moment when you see this. And they'll say, well, what I would do is I would go over to Todd. No, 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 no. No, I'm Todd. You're you. Let's go. Talk to me like Todd. And then they'll walk over and they'll say, hi, Todd. So I noticed that you're having. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I didn't notice. I'll get that taken. And then, of course, we go to Tuesday and there's the same problem again. And I walk them through where does their conversation change? And then what do they do when Todd feels like he's being put upon and being picked on? And at what point does coaching become documentation? Because I'm a firm believer that if you're writing people up, it's not motivational. I don't think one person in the history of ever was like, I got written up. I'm going to be better. No, you're not. You're going to do what it takes to hold on to your job till you figure out a place that you're happier at. It's the documentation of you're about ready to go. So the whole game is to figure out from which point do people decide that they're going to elevate their conversations. And in this game, I've had somebody on day two threaten termination. Like day two, everybody else has their forks right, Todd. Why aren't you doing it? And that, do you really like your job here on day two in this scenario? And I've also gone to day nine before someone's talked about termination. Either extreme is bad. But when you get people in the middle of an interview to start role-playing that aspect, you also see their willingness to drop their guard and be uncomfortable because role-playing is a little on a level silly and uncomfortable. But if they can't do it in an interview, they're not going to be very good at talking to tables at all. You also talk about the perils of having a robotic staff. 
And I do think that we all, whether it's front of house or back of house, we do work in a brigade format in that kind of fashion. And I do think that regimentation is incredibly important and the steps of service and protocols are critical to the success and the success of a consistent restaurant concept. But you talk about the perils of having robotic staff. Talk to me about that. Sure. So I use the examples of Veep or Curb Your Enthusiasm or This is Spinal Tap unscripted, scripted, hilarious shows to where instead of running from a straight script, it was, all right, in this scene, this is going to happen, and we're going to get to this, and we're going to go to there. And it was based on the talent and passion of the actors to put in and kind of ad lib and, and hit their touch points and to move the scene along. That, to me, is the way to train staff, which is simply, you're going to hit these beats along the way. However you hit them is fine. Just make sure that you touch them. So if you're going to welcome somebody, Welcome them, but don't welcome them the same way every time. And if you're going to talk about something that you're suggesting, you're going to talk about that because you actually care about that. I'm not in pre-shift telling you to push the salmon because it's going bad. That's not what management does. You go out and you talk to tables. I had two people that worked for me at the barbecue restaurant that were vegetarians. So they never talked about our ribs, not once ever. And I always told them never to simply because I wanted to talk about the vegetarian chili. I wanted them to talk about the things that they actually like because otherwise it's fake. And that's why I'm always really surprised when I go into a restaurant and I talk to staff and I'm like, what's your favorite thing in the menu? And they say, you know what? I haven't really had a lot of it. And I say, why? And, well, they don't really allow us. That level of how are you not getting your staff involved and passionate about what you're doing? is a very good reason why your service level is terrible, because you're a robot. The whole time you're talking, all I can think about is core values, because we had that issue. I mean, we struggled with noncompliance and then ended up on the other end of the spectrum with the robotic staff. And what cured everything for us? We're living our core values. We hired based on core values. The people that we hired shared those core values. They didn't need to be instilled in them. And then kind of like you talked about with having a broad playbook or touch points. And even on our busiest nights, it was such a rarity that a member of the floor staff would approach me with a problem. And it wasn't because they were afraid to. It was because they already knew what to do. All they needed to do was use their judgment and do whatever they would want someone to do for them if the shoe was on the other foot. And so at the end of every shift, we would sit down and we would talk about the struggles, the wins, the losses, the service recoveries, the whole nine yards, and everyone was able to learn from the experience. But we had to get away from the days of uh, customer X didn't like their steak. What do I do? Right. Absolutely. They should know what to do. And you can train empowerment just as much as you can train compliance. That also is a certain level of trust that you have with your staff, because that's where people live in this space, especially restaurant owners of, well, if you give them too much, staff's going to take advantage. I have to control all comps and voids because if I don't, they're going to take advantage. Well, no, the absolute opposite is true. If you allow your staff to have ownership, and if they're in the middle of you overhear your table saying, I don't know, do you want to get the tiramisu or the, or the uh, chocolate cake? And they order the chocolate cake and you bring them a little tiramisu, you've owned them, they're excited, and it's an amazing experience. But they have to go stop and go grab a manager and be like, hey, can I get table 43 a tiramisu? It's ridiculous and it's juvenile. But that requires 
a different conversation with your team, which goes back to the challenge of staffing. Is too many people, too many restaurants, pre and post pandemic, live in a world of thinking, oh my gosh, look at us, we're so great, instead of realizing that if you're a good server or a good bartender, or a good manager, you can get a job anywhere, legitimately. That is a true, couldn't be more true now than any place in the world, is that simply you can go anywhere and find a good job if you're a bartender server. They're making a conscious choice every single morning to come and work with you. Same way that my wife makes a conscious decision every morning to be married to me because she could wake up one day and go, no, I don't think so. And today is actually my fourth year anniversary. So it's a, I'm celebrating this with you. But yes, for four years, she woke up and said, I'm going to marry this guy. And for every day that your bartender wakes up and says, I'm going to go work for this guy, then great. And that should be met in the same way of thank you so much. Thank you for choosing to do that instead of all of this consternation or blaming the staff for the challenges of not being good or not finding good staff. Restaurants have to look at themselves and understand from an from an environment of non-empowerment to even an environment of compensation, maybe part of the reason that people aren't wanting to return to your place is you. And that's what I think restaurateurs are struggling with. I know I'm rambling, but I'll give you a quick one. I have a restaurant here in Chicago, restaurant group that I know of, that right when the pandemic hit, they changed all their kitchens over to community kitchens. And a lot of places did this. They burned off their excess stock. They gave it to their staff. They made sure that, but they took it a step further. They worked every single day and created kitchens to where they weren't only feeding their people, but everybody in the neighborhood and everyone in the industry for months and months and months and months. And then when the vaccines came out, they converted some of their restaurants to vaccine sites and they gave it out to the community for months and months and months. And simply because they wanted to be the catalyst of positivity. And now that Chicago is finally open, they are not having a problem with both guests or staff because everyone in the community has said, wow, I like what they did. And it's because of they had core values that people want to be aligned with. That's if there is a benefit to any of the insanity from the last two years, you saw the people who really, really deserve to be in the industry that stepped up and made it an admirable place to be alongside. To dig into the other side of employment, which is management, active management, you bring up a couple of really interesting concepts, a couple of which I have utilized and a couple of which I will utilize. One that I will utilize is your concept of witness protection. Unpack that for me. Sure. So this goes back to when you have changed your communication from coaching to documentation to where you now know that you're going to have a negative or what might be perceived as a less than positive conversation with somebody. Coaching is required. If somebody needs help with, hey, can you do me a favor and bus table 23, you don't need a witness for that. That's just part of daily management. But if you're having the same conversations over and over with the same staff member, and you know that you have to kind of pull them over, then you need to do so in an environment that's welcoming and that is not oppressive. And so the book lays out specifics. Don't put them in the manager office. It's a bad setup. Bring Make sure that you're in an open environment to where they don't feel like that they're claustrophobic. And most importantly, bring a witness. And when you bring that witness, don't have that witness sit on the same side of the table as you. Have them sit equidistant and acknowledge their presence in the beginning. Hi, so you and I are going to talk for a few minutes. Here's Bob over here. He's a witness and he's here just as much for your protection as he is mine. 
And you put that out there right at the beginning because the dynamic is never equal. You're in a position as a manager when you're managing your staff to where it is an uneven dynamic. So if that staff member says, oh, you know what, Ken really yelled at me and it was terrible, then Bob could be the person that says that's not really the case. But that's why it's important to make sure that the person that you choose, that Bob, is seen as a positive influence in that staff member's life. So it's not like two people that the staff member doesn't get along with. It's, oh, I usually bring chefs. Nine times out of 10, I'll bring a chef because they get along with chef and it's just a completely neutral party. But that will save trips to HR and challenges in communication because at any point that the staff member feels like that they're lost in it, they can turn to that witness and say, I'm not sure. Is he saying that I'm not busting my tables properly? And then that witness can kind of help say what I think he's trying to say is blah, 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 blah. They facilitate communication, but they also make sure that it's done in a positive manner. Too often I see people being reprimanded, terminated with nobody around. And then they're surprised at why that's being perceived as less than an ideal way of doing things. And that ricochets to the staff. So even if that person just goes away, everybody else knows that that's how you function. And it doesn't make you the type of person that people want to work with. You bring up the power dynamic and you bring it up a few times in the book. And I think it's so important. You highlighted an example talking about fraternizing after hours. And what you said is you can go out with your staff. You can have a couple of drinks. You can forget that you're their manager, but they don't. They never forget that you're their boss. And that's going to create an uncomfortable situation, no matter how you slice it, no matter how you feel before, during, and after that situation. It's not an ideal scenario for your team. Can you talk about that a bit more? Sure. I'm a victim of doing this myself. I'm guilty of doing this all the time, which is simply you build a rapport with your team. When you're a manager and you're all roughly the same age and everyone's hanging out, and in my 20s, I was 100% doing this, hanging out with my staff, and I felt that it was great. And we're all at O'Callahan's down the street having beers, and it's fine. We're not talking about work. We're just friends, and it feels comfortable. But the minute that some new person comes in, oh, hey, by the way, have you met Ken? Yeah, he's our manager. You immediately go, oh, shit. I never take the hat off as much as I think that they are my friends. And I've had a lot of friends in this industry who have worked for me in a professional situation. You get yourself in a really, really bad spot to where you're out and still seen as a boss. And so I put in a few rules because I said you shouldn't do it, which is what every HR professional will tell you. Don't do it. But then I say, well, you're gonna. So here are a few things that you might want to do. Don't drink more than two drinks. Don't hang out with just a few members of staff. Make sure that you make it as inclusive as possible. Pay the tab. This is a big one. Don't ever have anyone buy you drinks. If you're going to go out with eight people from the staff, then you're going to be the person walk in, have two drinks max, buy the tab, and then go, see y'all later, and then get out. Because otherwise, you're in a position of seeing that the staff's buying you drinks, or you're hanging out and being exclusive. And the next thing you know, when you're in those meetings trying to coach somebody, they're going to be like, well, you don't do that to Todd because you guys go out and have drinks together. And you can't manage if you're trying to use your environment just to be buddies and friends with people. It doesn't work. Just as an experience share, I took this to the nth degree. And at all of my locations, they were dry houses. That wasn't always the case, but in the latter years, it was. And the reason is we would invest so much time and so much money in the staff, making sure that they're trained well and outfitted and continuing education and making sure that they had all of the things, subsidized healthcare, 
we wanted it to be as an amazing place as possible to work in. And I just found that if people were allowed to drink on site, off shift, especially on shift, but off shift as well, it was just an unnecessary risk to the degree that I own the restaurant, I operate the restaurant, and I don't drink at the restaurant. If an employee showed up with their parents to show them how nice everything was, they could not drink at the table with their parents. When I brought my parents to that restaurant, I did not drink. I can drink anywhere in the world. I'm a grown man, but I did not drink in that place because I wanted them to know that the rules that I had put in place to protect them were also there to protect me as well. What I didn't want was I didn't want a great employee who was perfect on the clock to come in hammered one night and ruin it all for nothing. Absolutely. And you never know when that switch is flipped and then somebody is too hammered or blacked out. And then now you're, well, it wasn't me and it's a whole thing. Your clear delineation is the right thing to do. But I think industry-wide, there is definitely a lot of opportunities for people to hang out at the neighborhood pub down the street. It's just when it becomes that point to where you all are having conversations of, oh, yeah, Manager Ken was really hammered last night. You know, he was stumbled. Now you've lost the ability to manage from any sort of respect. And that's the pivot from freshman manager to true manager, which is moving from, I just want people to like me and I want to have a fun job to, I want to be respected and think about this from an entrepreneurial standpoint and being liked as secondary. Absolutely. And then you spend a lot of time in the book, later in the book, talking about the importance of like depersonalizing the overall management experience, which is hard to do. I tell people all the time in owning and operating hospitality locations for 20 plus years, if I got really good at just one thing, it was eating shit and pretending to like the taste. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, I mean, that is, that is really what it is. That is a legitimate skill. Sure. (laughs) But it's because I was able to depersonalize it, understanding that everything that happened was always about everyone else and had very little to do with me. Now, if it had something to do with me, that was even more empowering. and I had the ability to change it. Talk to me about you and your thought process, how you got there and how you actively depersonalized those difficult moments. I actually worked backwards on this one, and it started with reviews, online reviews. Because if you talk about what a restaurateur truly wants, put away all the BS, the first thing they want is a high star rating. And then, of course, they want to improve the experience and they want to make sure that they learn from it and great. But they are worried that that three-star review is going to negatively affect people coming to the restaurant. And so I began to kind of dig into the understanding of why people yelp, why people go online, why they do what they do, and beginning to figure out When operators reach out where they're failing and where they continue to fail all the time is realizing or not realizing that they're just defending and trying to stand on a position and say, no, you're wrong. I'm right. And you come off defensive. And I don't care what it is that you're trying to defend. You're going to come off as being territorial of your position because you're trying to defend the restaurant that you care about. And that's admirable. You spent months and years developing this restaurant, and now somebody's just raking it over the coals. And so it's a very common response to be like, no, you're wrong. But that's not going to get you to that understanding to where you understand why the guest is truly yelping. And it's because they're trying to warn the community or celebrate you in the community. And then 
understand the level of disappointment that they might have had, which is why that they had that negative review. So take that to a table touch because that's all an online review is. It's an extended table touch. And I say in the book, and it's absolutely true, I'd rather have a thousand one-star reviews than a thousand people walk away and not review because I can save all of those one-star experiences because it's still passion. But it's that other side to where people just walk away that I can't save. But when you see negativity at your table and someone's screaming and they're telling you that, oh, this steak, you made my steak bad. Well, you have to kind of understand why. And the first thing that you can't do is look at it and say, ma'am, that is a medium rare steak. You can't defend. You can always say, oh, I'm so sorry that that steak is not properly prepared, even if it is. Or I'm so sorry that that water is too wet, even though water's wet. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. You have to be able to remove your level of territorialness from it and then kind of understand why people are the way that they are. And usually those extroverted people who are commenting at your table are doing so far less to do with the overcooked steak. It has to do with they're probably sticker shocked or maybe it was an important business meeting or maybe a dinner or maybe they got kids, they got somebody to watch their kids since the only time out this month and everything was so put pressure on it and there's so much expectation and this is wrong and they just pop and you happen to be that directive person. But the burnout from restaurant managers that I see all the time are people who are like, I'm tired of eating shit. I'm tired of getting yelled at. And my training is you got to take two steps back, man. You have to see these people as very simply, not only out of control, but almost a compassionate sort of aspect because their level of anger and animosity is just covering up their own insecurities. And I always have to quickly say, I love feedback and I truly want people's feedback. But if someone says, hey, you know what? That steak could really, you know, it's a little overdone. And they say it like that. No one's going to internalize that. They're going to say, thank you for that information. It's the person who's screaming and fetching and throwing that we all deal with on a nightly basis that burn people out. And so that's why I spend a lot of my book talking about how to get that negativity out of your life so that you understand the philosophy of why people do what they do. It's a human business run by humans, serving humans. So the margin of error is small, but the ability to create a mistake is really, really high. And it's for me, it just came down to whenever anyone was upset, just being upset that they were upset. Right. The empathy aspect. You're exactly correct. It's a small, small percentage of people who come in with the intention of trying to game the system or go online and complain simply because they want free things. And that's always my pushback from owners and chefs to where they're like, they just want free stuff. And I always kind of counter that by saying, well, think about that for a minute. Think about how sad that person's life must be. Like, where are they in their life to where the only way that they can get a meal is by going on and complaining about it? And that's their way of going out to a nice dinner because they know that they're going to get something for free because they're going to complain. What an incredibly sad existence that is. So chalk that up for the 3% of people that do that as a cost of doing business and how sad for them and move on. Focus on the 97. And sometimes they list. <laughs> As a book author, yes. what books have made the biggest impact in your life? This is where the honest truth comes. I will tell you that people give me books all the time to read. And as I was putting this together, I wouldn't read any of them because I didn't want to be drawn. In. I mean, of course, I grew up reading Setting the Table and Be Our Guest and you know all of those different aspects of what it was to begin to get into management in my youth. As silly as it sounds, 
what motivated me most of all was stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is my absolute passion because it teaches me to continue to push forward and speak out even if I don't think anyone else is going to listen. And so when I would get to that point where I was blocked on a chapter and I'd go, oh, God, I don't know, I'd flip on Bill Hicks or Bill Burr or, or whomever. And it was just that, that's it. I'm motivated again. I can get back in to do it. And that was what kind of got me through those, those moments to where I thought, no one's going to read this. Why am I still writing this? It's an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I think that the biggest words of encouragement that I have right now for both people who are in the restaurant industry and for those who frequent restaurants is a generous understanding of exactly where we are in this industry. We are not living in 2019 times. If you're used to going to your favorite place, we're so happy that you're back, but that steak's going to take you 10 minutes longer and that seat's going to take you 15 minutes more and that drink's going to take you five minutes more. And please be understanding of that because we are working in a labor crisis. And if you are working in a restaurant, we are working in a labor crisis, which means you're taking twice as many tables and you're catching twice as much hell. But we all know that the people who are willing to come back to this industry are lifers and thank God for you because I will say that if there's one thing that happened in the last two years, the people that were on the fence about being in our industry left and who's left are absolute killers and God love you for being one. That's Kim McGarry. You can pick up a digital copy of the surprise restaurant manager for 99 cents on Amazon today. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.